Hello and welcome to our Shattered Live special on the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. I'm Kieran Bradley, sitting in for Paul Healy this week. We'll be bringing the latest from Dublin Special Criminal Court, where Mr Hutch is charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. Mr Hutch denies the charge. Two men, Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney, are also before the non-jury Special Criminal Court, accused of facilitating the murder by providing vehicles. Both men deny the charges. To discuss the developments in the case, I'm joined by Mick O'Toole, crime correspondent with the Irish Daily Star. Mick, how are you doing? Hello, Kieran. So Mick, this is the first podcast that we've done since Tuesday evening. We've obviously had two full days of evidence at Dublin Special Criminal Court. You might just bring us up to date with what's happened, and it might be best to do it for simplicity's sake by what happened yesterday first. Yeah, I, I think that's a very uh, good idea, Kieran. So yesterday was the second day of the three days of the recordings of Jerry Hutch and uh, Jonathan Dowd on their, on their nine and a half hour, ten hour Jerry journey on the 7th of March from Belfast up to... Now, it's quite interesting. When, obviously, I'm from the north and I was listening to it. I, I, I heard some reports about it being Straban, but I can tell you, I mean, it was it was Belfast because they were talking about Lisburn, which is just south of Belfast. And even the way, there, you know, there were various parts where they were asking people for directions and it wasn't going, ah, oh, you know, over there is Lifford over there. It was, it was in the east of the north. So it was around the Belfast area. And that was an eye opener for me because, you know, and even at one stage, uh, John, John, Jonathan Dowdell said to Jerry Hutch, it's really interesting. They're obviously meeting Republicans. And he said, weren't they very smart because they went to a Protestant area? So obviously the dissident Republicans that they were they were meeting, rather than, you know, going over to somewhere that would be considered a Republican area and, you know, being amongst their own people, shall we say, they were going to some, maybe it, was, it sounded like it was sort of between Lisburn and East Belfast, sort of that, that sort of area. So that he, he, it, was, it was just really interesting from that perspective. So, so it, it was very interesting just to, to see the whole, the whole rationale there. But anyway, so there was, there was, it was three days of, of evidence then it finished today. But yeah, we, we, the last pod covered the first day. So we'll, we'll just for a few even a few brief minutes, we'll talk about yesterday's evidence, and there was an awful lot of stuff in it. Um, one of the things that has jumped out at me, jumped out at me, and it has become clear by the listening to the evidence, is the state's reliance on Hutch's use of the word yokes. Now, the sta- he keeps on talking about, he talks about these three yokes, those three yokes, you've got to give them these three yokes, you've got to give them these three yokes as a present. Now, um, uh, the state's claim is that the reference to the yokes is a reference to the three Kalashnikov-style rifles that were used by the, the gang in, that murdered David Byrne in the attack in the Regency Airport Hotel on February 5th, 2016. We know that they were caught, uh, that they were seized by the Special Detective Unit in Slane County Meath on March the 9th. So that's two days after this uh, conversation was taking place. But in, in the recordings yesterday, uh, Jonathan Dowdell said to to Jerry Hutch, right at the start, said the best move was using those three yokes in the Regency. Now, the, the import of that was the Kalashnikov-style rifles uh, are not normally associated with gangland. They're normally associated with, with paramilitaries or what you would call terrorists. So, you know, groups like the the IRA, the, the, the UVF, for example, the UDA up, up north, the real IRA, you know, they're the and even you know if you want to further away, the the, the Kalashnikov is the weapon of choice for most uh, 
terrorist groups, you know, all around the world. So the import of what Jonathan Dowd always said, well, that was a smart move because when the Kalashnikovs com- comes out, people immediately went, uh-oh, this wasn't a criminality thing, this was a terrorist thing. And, and Jonathan Dowd was basically saying, if the state's case is to be believed, that those three yokes at the Regency were the Kalashnikovs and that sort of sent investigators off in a different direction. And just even, this hasn't been said in the trial, but we do know that a couple of days after the the Regency, there was a claim by the, uh, the Continuity IRA, which is an offshoot of the Provisional IRA. They, have, they, left the, uh, they split away from the Provost in, in the mid-80s, actually. And they've been quite dormant for a while, but they're, they're, they're out and about. Or they're called the Contos in the trial. And they claimed responsibility for the Regency. So, you know, it really did set a, the cat amongst the patients. So it's real, I suppose, that a diversionary tactic, if the state's case is to be believed, that the, the Yokes were referring to that. But then another uh, interesting aspect of this, and it really opened my eyes about Hutch. Hutch clearly didn't want the war. You know, he, he clearly wasn't re- reveling in all this violence. And, you know, he kept on saying he doesn't want another death. He doesn't want any more killing. And he did talk about peace talks with the Kenins. And even that was an eye opener because he said it's really hard to get into talks with the Kenins because the messenger gets hit. So in other words, if anybody goes to the Kenins to try and get peace talks going, their lives are at risk. So who would be brave enough or stupid enough to contact the Kenins on behalf of the, the Hutches because their own lives would be at risk? Yeah, it's very interesting because it does seem to the, the kind of outside observer that we're getting quite intimate details of the kind of nature of the feud between the Hutches and the Kenins at the moment. Um, and I, even just from the sense of um, you were saying around the tone of what Jerry Hutch was saying about Daniel Kennan's demeanour at um, David Byrne's funeral, is is this is what you're hearing is this surprising to you in any sense are you are you kind of getting a a different sense of of the feud in in some way or is this is this pretty par for the course i no i i was surprised i'll be honest because what comes across for me and look i i'm i'm not a big fan of giving opinion of legal of ongoing legal cases so i'm going to try and restrict it to analysis but the way it looked to me i'm only giving you what i see was that there was a level of humanity there with Jerry Hutch, he was clearly look. His brother Eddie Nettie had had been murdered by the Kenyan cartel on the eighth of February, three days after the Regency. So this was just about a month and a day, a month and a day really after the murder of his own brother. Now there was some talk about Nettie, but not that much. But what just struck me was, I got a sense that he was. I'm not going to say upset, but he was concerned and saddened that all these things were happening. He was worried for his own family, but he was clearly worried for, you know, the North Inner City community. He was clearly worried for people who had been, you know, on the other side, shall we say. He, it's clear to me, Jerry Hutch did not want a war, right? Now, maybe he was pushed into a situation of a war, but he clearly did not want the war. And, you know, the, the one of the key take, takeaways from me from this whole thing that he was really you know i think he really deeply regretted the way things had turned out and he was trying and he was talking to dad all quite a lot about you know can we talk about this can we get people to talk to the kennings can we get can we have a sit down meeting you know he said there has to be a better alternative than the gun so you know for me he was really rueful and regretful 
that things had turned out the way he that they had. So that struck me because you know we 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 would have had sources on both sides and look they would have spoken about deep anger and resentment on either side and you know you can't have that and there and and it's clear that there was because if you remember you know this was not two rival gangs butting heads against each other it was one one gang that broke off and we know that there were deep personal friendships on you know there that were fractured as a result of this feud and the result of the the murder of Gary Hutch and what happened before it with the attempt on Daniel Kennan's life in 2013 and then everything that happened after the murder of Gary Hutch in September 2015 so I, that regretful I think is the word that I would use to cons- to when I think of how Jerry Hutch was talking in those th- really three days there was no you know, there was no vitriol. There was no anger. It was. I thought there was more a sadness in him, and he just. It's clear that he didn't want people to die. I mean, I mean that's really clear. He is not one of these people. Let's, you know, kick down doors and use a spray job and knock all these geezers out. He didn't want anybody to be killed, and you know that has to be said. It's very interesting. Um, so. I guess if we spool forward a touch uh, to today, then uh, today's evidence appeared largely to consist of uh, audio recordings again. Um, these are seen to be a fairly key aspect of this case, at least from one remove. What is your sense of how things have gone And uh, now that we've heard the audio recordings? Or where are we? Right. Well, I'll talk a few, maybe an idea just to talk a few minutes about what we heard today. So it was the last leg of the journey. So it was, as I say, it started early on at two o'clock, one o'clock maybe on the the seventh of March, and went up. They went up to the north and back down. It was ten hours, and it finished, uh, you know, just shortly after midnight. So they had an awful lot of conversations, and you know, the, the thing about it, it was an organic conversation. One minute they can be talking about politics. One minute, like today, they were talking about the SAS ambush of three IRA volunteers in 1988 at Gibraltar, in which they were all three were shot dead. And it was a really famous case back in the day, probably before uh, most people who were in the court today were born and would have been aware of. But I, I grew up with it and I remember that case. And when we were talking about it today, it jumped out at me. But, and, he, and he was talking about, you know, Sinn Féin sharing power with Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil or, you know, why young people, they expect politicians you know, in, when they're in government to be exactly the same as they were in, in opposition. But, you know, I, I thought it was very sophisticated of, of Hutch to talk about how, you know, politicians have to change when they get into power because your considerations change and all, all your, your dynamics change and all that sort of thing. So, that, so you know, we heard a wide range of, of things that were said. And, and there were some things today. We do know that he did speak about Kenahan previously in, in the last couple of days. But I thought it was really interesting. This jumped out at me today. They were talking... Uh, Jonathan Doyle was driving he was driving the car Hutch was in the passenger seat and at one, at quite early on in, in today's evidence Doyle said you know he was talking about the guards raiding Jerry Hutch's house Jerry Hutch lives in the paddocks in Clontarf and he, you know he has been a, a, an object of a guard investigation for quite a long time and Jerry Hutch was saying ah you know they got a shock when they came in because he basically said that he wasn't really expecting that they were, weren't expecting him to be there so it was all about you know uh, and Jerry and uh, so it's obviously an investigation into the Regency. And Jonathan Dowdell said, well, you know, do you think they'll ever get, do you think they'll ever get to the bottom of it, Gerard? Right. By the way, he calls him Gerard. And that's the North Inner City thing. We always call him Jerry Hutch. But to the North Inner City community, it's Gerard. And everybody calls him Gerard. So through the whole tape, he never calls him Jerry. It's always Gerard. But he says, you know, do you think they'll ever get to the bottom of it? And Jerry Hutch goes, who? And he goes, the cops. And he goes, you know, 
They'll try an awful lot of avenues, but he said, but I don't think they have anything at all. So, you know, he was quite d- dismissive, I thought, of the Garda investigation. But, you know, well, he is on trial now. But then Dowdle brings it forward a wee bit and he says, you know, because it's, it's, it's like a chain of, uh, you know, of, of consciousness. So it just, it goes from one thing to the other. So obviously Dowdle decides to bring up the burn funeral. And that He says, I think that's the best thing that happened was that that burn funeral, it took things completely away from we're taking oh, and Jerry Hodge says well it makes them fucking showing what they really are you know now that's a reference to the funeral of David Byrne that, so David Byrne is the man who was murdered at the Regency Airport Hotel and it's the man that uh, Jerry Hodge is on trial for the murder of a murder he denies now if, you, if p- listeners will remember back that there was a massive controversy about that funeral it happened in South Inner City Dublin I think it was about two weeks after the after the murder and mm-hmm. they, you know effectively there were four or five streets sealed off there was a massive motorcade from Crumlin in south cent- south inner city Dublin, right into the city centre. I think there were about eight or nine car limousines in the cavalcade. I mean, there was no expense spared. There was an awful lot of money spent on the funeral, and you know, there, you know, even everybody was dressed in blue because David Byrne was a, a Chelsea fan, so you know, it was blue shirts and dark blue ties, and it almost looked. I'm not going to, not like a paramilitary thing, but it was very much an organised thing. And it seemed like a sort of show of strength because everybody was there. All the people were there and they were shown that we're undefeated by, by the Hutch gang. But he's, but, you know, there was a significant media backlash against that, but also a political backlash because I think people were genuinely shocked at this mm. brazen show of strength. Now, what Dowdle is saying there is that's, that's great because, you know, that took the uh, took the the spotlight off the regency and turned it very much onto the the Kenhans. and you know what he's absolutely right because you know the news agenda really really changed after that funeral because it was like it was front page news and it was you know it was all over liveline for example it was all over lo- lots of people were really really shocked at how confident and even brazen and bright the funeral was I've covered lots of gangland funerals and there were very few like that in fact I can't really think of any that were like that so um, you know uh, he, he, he's quite right but then Dowdle brings it on again and then he says I'd, I'd say he's sorry he's ever done this Gerard to be honest now that we believe is a reference to uh, Daniel Kinnan because Daniel Kinnan prosecuted this war and you know Daniel, Daniel Kinnan was behind the gang that killed Gary Hutch in Spain and everything blew up from there and I've always said this and you know there would be a view within policing that you know some members of the Kenyan cartel aren't overly happy the way the war was prosecuted by Kenyan and it's viewed very much that it's him not acting as a loose cannon but him driving this forward where other people like like Christy Kenyan his father had always been a much more intelligent man and Gardy would have had a, a grudging respect for him because he was very smart and the view was always said to me was that, you know, if Christy Kennan was still in charge, this probably wouldn't ha- have happened because Daniel was the chief executive, shall we say, of the, the cartel. And, you know, he was under pressure from associates of David Byrne who really, really wanted revenge. And he w- they were at him to attack the, the Hutches and he listened to them. So w- w- when Dowdle says that he believes that he's sorry he ever done this, Jared Hutch says, ah, so would I, right? So that was interesting. So you can see that you know, even that sort of level of insight from Hutch, it's not, who does this Kenan fella think he is? You can see that he's sort of, there's a bit of empathy and a bit of understanding mm. there. So anyway, so, you know, Dowdle keeps on going, he keeps on talking about, you know, he, interestingly, he said, he's, 
he should have stuck to the first deal. Remember, we do know that there had been negotiations and we know that uh, Jerry Hutch had had paid €200,000 to the Kenahan cartel after the botched hit on on, uh, Daniel Kenahan in Spain. In August 2013, he, he, there, there was a story leaked and that was mentioned today. John Mooney in the Sunday Times got an interview with someone very close to Jerry Hutch. Jerry Hutch himself said in the in the paper, in the recordings there that he told the Sunday Times. So I don't know. I mean, John's very, like most journalists, he's very pr- protective of his sources. So he's not going to confirm anything. But J- Jerry Hutch has basically said it. But there was a deal, 200 grand, and that was supposed to be peace. So, you know... Uh, Dowdle was quite scathing of them they should have said they had a deal mm. and he, and they really should have stuck to that so you can see you know and then it, it, it led on it was basically, basically it was all about uh, Jonathan Dowdle he started getting stuck in, in stuck into the Kennings and he goes how do you think they got so big or how do you get you know because he said look there were two brothers and a father so that is Daniel Christopher Christy Kennan is the father Christopher mm. is the son and Daniel is the other son. So it's that triumvirate. So it is clearly a reference to it when he goes, how did he get so strong? There were two brothers and a father and the two brothers weren't criminals as the rest of the young fellas came up. And that is true because, you know, Daniel Kenan doesn't have any criminal convictions. Neither does Christopher Kenan. Daniel was charged in 2001 with assault, uh, with a number of people assaulting off Judy Gardy at Shelburne Park Races, Greyhound place actually. But apart from that, he hadn't, been you know got any convictions for criminality so he'd been on the street and now now we know now that he'd been building this empire and that was really after 2001 but it it, 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 it there was a grudging respect from Hutch because he said Daniel is wide enough uh, and he and he said that they always used the best of the young fellas and then he said you know he you could see that he was saying look you know the Kenahans they made a bit of money but then in the last few years they started making really big money a couple of years ago and Dowdall says it seems to me they're just blinded by greed and they're willing to overlook everything for the money and Hutch agrees he goes it's power as well not the money it's just the bleeding power as well With the ki-. and then he says mm. they want to be the biggest gang in Europe the Colombians and everyone coming to them and all whereas Jerry whereas Dowdall said ah, you wouldn't want that much money would you would you not just be happy with a few quid and Hutch says yeah I don't want hundreds of millions. So it was really interesting. So you know what I mean? There's that sort of real, real insight and real, anal- real analysis of what Hutch and Dowdall think about the Kenyans. So look, as journalists, we can only see, somebody once told me, journalists are lucky if you see 10%. Mm. And this, you know, it's an unguarded moment by Hutch and Dowdall and it is really illuminating because you can see as I keep on saying, you know, where's the vitriol? I don't sense any real vitriol from Hutch, even though the Kennans have just have killed his nephew at this stage. They've killed his brother. Mm. And in a couple of weeks, they're going to go and kill another nephew and they're going to try and kill other members of the Hutch family. But there's no, I, I, I don't think it's too strong to say there's zero hatred there. There's, you know, there's regret and there's probably a bit of anger. But just the way he spoke about them, you can see that there had been a relationship there before, but it's broken down. So it is a, it's a really, really good insight from that perspective because it's unguarded. I'll just give you, I mean, one thing that I sort of find quite funny is how talkative Jerry Hutch is. Like many journalists, I've had his number for probably 20 years. I can recite, I know it off by heart. I can, I can recite it for you now if you want. I know it. Please right? don't. And, Please don't. No, well, I know. But I must have rung him over the years 
maybe a dozen times, right? I mean, I remember in the star we broke the story in probably 2000 that he'd made a humongous uh, tax settlement with the Criminal Assets Bureau. In fact, we had surveillance photographs of, us, of him coming out of the bank with a bag full of cash, like we're talking 500 grand and walking down Talbot Street with the bank with the, the money in his back in his in his backpack you know so it was a great story so I remember ringing him then I remember ringing him maybe a dozen times after that and every sign, single time it's as if he was reading from a sheet he would go I have no comment to make to you and that would be the end of the conversation and I'd go ah come on Mr Hutch and he went I have no comment to make to you right and that so my <laughs> interactions with him were quite monotonous I tried my best but he wasn't interested and here he is, you get to see this, this is what I'm saying, you get to see the real Jerry Hutch. And it's fascinating from a journalistic perspective because, you know, his, the shutters were up f- with him to me and I, 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 against a few other journalists as well. So it's real open, I have to say. I thought it was, it's fascinating. I could have listened to the whole thing all day. Do you ever think it could have been you, Mick, that made him that way? Or <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes. <with> that, yeah. <laughs> And and just um, on one point of order, I suppose now I, I, we, we've kind of been told for a while that the uh, audio tapes themselves will form a little bit of a trial within a trial uh, in terms of whether they are admissible, how much of them uh, is admissible, etc. Do we have a sense of will that be at the end of the case or is that something that will be decided kind of before the next phase of the uh, the trial goes ahead? Uh, no, that that actually started today. Brendan Grenton, senior counsel for so, so for Jared Hodge made a, a told the court what he was going to be objecting or what his, his case was going to be. So in the afternoon, as I was saying, the morning was taken up with the end of the, the, the audio recording. And then in the afternoon for an hour and a half, Brendan Graham, senior counsel for uh, Jerry Hutch, gave, said that there was going to be, that they were mounting a legal challenge. They'd, what, they want the recordings in their entirety and then uh, they want the recordings in their entirety ruled inadmissible, right? So what he said was that there are two issues they're going to be talking about. One is about the lawfulness of the authorization in itself to bug Dowdall's car. And, you know, he ta- started talking about, and there is going to be plenty of legal case law. So basically one of the, the elements they will be relying on is that Mr. Hutch and Mr. Dowdall, Mr. Hutch in this case, is entitled to his privacy. So uh, they're saying that the decision to grant or the decision to bug the car was illegal and the decision to grant permission for it to be uh, to be used was illegal. Now the second one is, he is claiming. So the the first one is that it was, there was the the authorization to bug the car was illegal, but then he's going to be saying that the bug itself was illegal, and then he says the consequence of illegal use is to in inad- render inadmissible the fruits of that legality. So, uh, in other words, if a law, if you break, if the, if if you do something illegal, then you can't use what you gather illegally. So in other words, if he's saying that the evidence was gathered illegally, but the bug was fitted illegally, then what is contained in the bug cannot be used. So he lists four reasons. Uh, he says that, you know, uh, there have to be, a, there's a clear and precise framework for in, uh, in, in invading someone's rights. And they say, obviously a bug is a big uh, invasion of your, your rights to privacy. And he says, he, their, their contention is that it was illegal. And he says that the end, as it were, cannot justify the, the 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 means. So he gives four reasons that he will be claiming that or proposing for the, the bug to be rendered made illegal by the, the judge. The first one is that obviously we know that they had to go to a district court to seek permission to plant the bug. The way it works, the guards 
we know that there were a tracker and a log device fitted on the car and that was fitted on the authorization of a senior officer in the Garda National Surveillance Unit. But it's a different ballgame to go and use a listening device in a car or in a property. So in that case, you have to go to the district court. So there, so they went and they got a they they go into chambers in a private room for the judge, and they effectively asked for permission to bug the car. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying is that there was a it was a pre prepared document that was given to the judge for their signature. So it was it wasn't bespoke. It was just like a pro forma, pre preferred thing. And then they also say that there's a lack of proper records being kept in relation to the decision making and in relation to all the aspects around the bugging itself. Then uh, there was not sworn information put before the court based on the oath that was taken. So that's going to be a very, very technical thing. So we'll have to wait and see what, what Rosie could do. And then there's also a lack of candor in relation to what transpired. And, and they gave one example. We know, for example, when they, they were uh, asking the judge for permission to bug the car, the judge was not told that there had already been a tracker fitted the day before. So the tracker was fitted on the authorization of a senior officer. They then go to the judge to ask for permission to uh, fit the, the the listening device itself, but the judge hadn't been told, and they're they're raising questions about that. But another major aspect, and we've known about this, that the, the, Brendan Graham is saying that the Surveillance Act of two thousand and nine, on which the surveillance was carried out, he's saying it's very very clear that that applies only to Northern Ireland, right? Now they're saying that from 3.12pm until 10.50pm the bugging happened outside the state. So that's, that's, that's eight hours. So they're saying that's illegal. And he says that the clear, it's clear that the Act only allows for surveillance in the state. And he says the Gardaí are using the fruits of surveillance carried out outside the state. So that's the whole thing about the, the fruit of the poison tree. So the, the poison tree is the, the Brendan Graham's case that it was illegal to bug the car and the fruit of the of the the poison tree, as it were, is the 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 evidence in the car and from the audio device. So they want that all kicked out. So it's going to be my understanding is there's going to be a day tomorrow where there's going to be to and fro from the defence and the prosecution. Try and the def- the prosecution will be trying to persuade the judge to keep it in. The defence will be trying to persuade the judge to take it out. So I think we should know probably Monday morning or maybe early next week. So then it's a decision. If it's if it's in, then Mr. Hutch is in serious bother. If the judge decides to exclude either all of it or chunks in Northern Ireland, so there's two things the judges could do really if they decide. They could get rid of it all or they could say, well, Brendan Graham's right. The act only applies to surveillance in Northern Ireland. That was out or in, in the Republic. This was in Northern Ireland. So the, the, the ARR journey in the North is gone. So so they, they could do that or they could decide to accept it all. So we'll know. So there, there are plenty of scenarios but if that does happen then it's likely that that will be made within the coming very 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 quickly there won't be they won't be taking a month to think about this they'll come to a very quick decision and then we're on to the next thing and the next big thing will be the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall himself very good. Well, I mean, and, and we're looking at uh, next week for Jonathan Dowdall's evidence in court. Is that correct? Yes, it all depends how it goes. And I, I, I don't really like to give, you know, specific deadlines because with court cases, things can come up. But look, I think there will be a decision pretty quickly on this legal challenge. If the, you know, if the, if the evidence, the surveillance evidence is thrown out, you know, then the state might have a very dis- difficult decision to make. So, but that, that, you know, let's, let's, they can trouble that when trouble comes. But yes, look, Essentially, 
big call by the, the three judges. They have to make the decision in this. It can go either way, really. The judges have to decide. There'll be persuasive arguments after, on either side. Then after that, it's Jonathan Dowd also. That's going to be box office. That could be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I anticipate it will be some week, uh, someday, some week, next week. Very good. Well, as ever, we'll be here with uh, all the cogent information as and when uh, it arises. Uh, Mick, any other business before we uh, before we love you and leave you? No, I just it it um, I I just saw a completely different side of of Jerry Hutch. He's a very complex man. He's not. I'm not going to say he's he's not the way he's painted because we've always painted him as a very clever and very intelligent and very scheming man. You can see that he is, and he he thinks about and laughs laugh a lot of things. But it was just. I, I listen. I just thought it was fascinating to hear him talk, just being so open because he has a persona when he when he's talking to us, and it's I'm not I have nothing to say to you in this matter or whatever. So it was just really interesting from a journalist perspective to, to, to hear that, and you heard so much, and you just heard, you know, even him trying to get peace talks with the Kennehans and then talking. I, I there's one thing I thought was very funny before you go. He they started talking about weapons and. Uh, Dowdle was talking about uh, there's a machine pistol an Israeli machine pistol called, called the Uzi it's a famous one and it is it's notoriously inaccurate it's an automatic machine pistol and you know you hold down the, the pistol the trigger and all the bullets are gone in a matter of uh, maybe a second or whatever you know and he was and Dowdle was going ah, you know notoriously inaccurate it's a spray job and then it got on to Heckler and Koch uh, which is a German is it German? Uh, a German uh, arms so, manufacturer yeah. Yeah, yeah it is German right so um uh, Hutch was obviously enamoured with them because he said the Heckler and Cock they're the dog's bollocks so uh, I would agree with them they're, they're very good weapons they're used mostly by most police forces would use them the guards see I'm trying to think was he talking about the MP5 which is an older machine gun or was he talking about the MP7 which is what the uh, armed support unit have here but he obviously knows his weapons so fair play to him well, you know what, Mick? I'm very glad I asked. So thank you. I've, I've learned a little bit there. So, um, But listen, thanks, Mill, for your time today. Uh, and thanks to everyone who's listening. Obviously, we'll be back next week with, uh, with podcasts as we go. So thanks, Mill, Mick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shattered Lives. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, feel free to listen to our back catalogue. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. This series is produced by Kieran Bradley and is a production for Reach.